This is a Scream Queen production. It's been half a century since the long, hot summer of 1967 when race riots erupted around the country. From Boston to Tampa and Atlanta to New York City, racial tensions and inequity ignited a powder keg in overcrowded, overpoliced urban communities with tragic results. Fifty-five years ago this week, all eyes were on the city of Detroit as the deadliest of those riots unfolded. What began as an early morning raid on an illegal nightclub on July 23, 1967, ended five days later with 43 people dead, nearly 1,200 injured, over 7,000 people arrested, and more than 400 buildings destroyed. Today, we're talking about the Detroit riot of 1967. If you ask the Google to tell you about the worst riots in U.S. history, you're likely to notice a couple of things. One, every list that you see will be different because what makes one riot worse than another is subjective, apparently. Is it the number of fatalities, the amount of damage, the number of people involved, a combination of all of those things? The other thing you'll notice is that on most of those lists, Detroit is listed not once, but twice. The 1967 riot almost always, but also the Detroit race riot of 1943. Much like the 1967 riot, the 1943 riot was part of a summer of violence across the U.S. There were riots in Beaumont, Texas, Harlem, and the infamous Zoot Suit riots in Los Angeles that same summer. And just like in 1967, the Detroit riots were the deadliest of them all. It's strange to me that the Zoot Suit riots are the most talked about, probably just because it happened in Los Angeles where there are always cameras rolling, because nobody died in the Zoot Suit riots, but in Detroit, nearly three dozen people were killed over the course of about 24 hours. In 1943, the United States was deeply entrenched in World War II, but there was also a war raging on the home front. On May 25th, a riot broke out at the Alabama Dry Dock Shipping Company in Mobile, Alabama, after 12 black employees were promoted to positions that had previously been reserved for whites only. In response, a mob of over 4,000 employees, this was a huge company, they employed about 50,000 people, Uh, they armed themselves with pipes and billy clubs and they began attacking any black employee they could find. Miraculously, no one was killed, but more than 50 people were seriously injured. On June 3rd, the notorious Zoot Suit riots started in L.A., when a dozen white sailors attacked a group of Mexican-American teenagers simply because of their wardrobe choices. Zoot suits were colorful, oversized suits worn most commonly by Black and Mexican-American teenagers as a way to express their individuality. 
It was decided amongst the whites that this style of dress was wholly unpatriotic and could not be tolerated. So patriots began attacking zoot suiters in the streets. The day after the June 3rd incident, over 200 sailors took a taxi convoy into the heart of L.A.'s Mexican-American community and began attacking every young Mexican-American man they encountered with clubs and bats. And again, zoot suits were most popular among very young men, including teenagers. So U.S. service members were violently attacking children, American children, in the streets of Los Angeles for wearing big, colorful suits. The attacks lasted for almost a week, and shockingly, no one was killed, but over 150 people were seriously injured, and over 500 people were arrested. On June 15th, riots erupted in Beaumont, Texas, following a white woman's claim that she'd been raped by a black man. Word quickly spread around the city of 80,000 residents, and when it reached the Pennsylvania shipyard, white workers took the completely logical step of attacking their black co-workers. Not because any of them were allegedly or possibly involved, just because they were black. A mob of nearly 4,000 white men stormed the jail where suspects in the rape case were being detained. When the alleged victim couldn't pick anyone out of a lineup, the mob turned their rage onto the surrounding neighborhoods, attacking black citizens and destroying over 100 homes owned by black families. Three people were killed, two black men and one white man. 50 more were injured and over 200 rioters were arrested. So this was just a social climate, kind of, in general at that time. And things in Detroit weren't any better. Between 1941 and 1943, Southerners migrated to Detroit by the tens of thousands for defense jobs because all of those big auto factories in Motor City were being converted for the war effort when the U.S. joined World War II. Detroit's big, but it wasn't equipped to grow quite so big so fast. Uh, Many of the families that migrated to Michigan were black, which caused quite the conundrum for the white families that had traveled north because Bubba Jim Bob wasn't used to working on the line next to a black man. Where he came from, they still didn't eat in the same restaurants or send their kids to the same schools. While there were plenty of these new defense jobs to go around, good-paying jobs, there wasn't nearly enough housing, especially in black neighborhoods. Detroit was fiercely segregated at the time, and whites violently defended those borders. I wonder if they tried building a wall. Even before Detroit's population exploded at the start of the war, black neighborhoods were dangerously overcrowded, living conditions were poor, and rent was way too high because landlords knew they had them trapped. There was nowhere else they literally could go. They, they couldn't leave these neighborhoods. The 200,000 black people living in Detroit were forced into small, subdivided apartments that typically housed multiple families per unit, located on 60 square blocks on the city's east side. This was an area that was known at the time as Black Bottom. When the black community inevitably and quickly outgrew these cramped living quarters, expansions into other areas of the city was met with mobs of angry whites burning crosses, making threats, and of course, resorting to physical violence. All of this to say, racial tensions were very high in Detroit in the 1940s. 
which is how a fight between a black teenager and a white teenager on Detroit's Belle Isle, a little island park in the Detroit River, turned into an all-out brawl involving over 200 people. Thus began the Detroit race riot on June 20th, 1943. Police were able to break up the initial fight on Belle Isle, but that night emotions were still running high and the rumor mill began to spin out of control. A rumor began to circulate that a group of black men had raped a white woman near the Belle Isle Bridge, so a mob of white men gathered outside the Roxy Theater on Woodward where um, there was a movie showing. When the movie let out, they attacked black men as they left the theater. At the Forest Social Club in the black neighborhood of Paradise Valley, a rumor started that a white man had thrown a black woman and her baby off the Belle Isle Bridge, which resulted in a mob of angry black men taking to the streets where they smashed out windows, looted businesses, and attacked white motorists. Before long, the two mobs numbered in the thousands, and the violence escalated. According to the Detroit News, the white mob overturned cars owned by blacks, set them on fire, and beat black men. A white Italian immigrant doctor, Joseph D. Horatius, was beaten to death while making a house call in a black neighborhood. Black people were pulled off trolley cars and beaten. The violence was too much for the 2,000-man-deep Detroit Police Department, and so 6,000 armed soldiers in tanks rolled into town compliments of the U.S. Army. The riot ended soon after. When it was over, 34 people were dead, 25 of them black. Of those, 17 were killed by police officers. Nearly 700 people were wounded, almost 2,000 people were arrested, and over $2 million in property damage had been done, which would be the equivalent of close to $35 million today. One would think that such a deadly clash between residents, this was between the citizens, the black citizens and the white citizens of Detroit, you would think that this would, you know, be a wake-up call of sorts. Well, shit's got to change. We can't let that happen again. But nothing changed. And it did happen again, less than 25 years later. And the second time was even worse than the first time. Much like when the 1943 violence popped off, we were once again at war, in Vietnam this time, when the long, hot summer began. According to the most reliable news source on the planet, Wikipedia, there were 159 racially motivated riots that summer the deadliest of which began in Detroit in the early morning hours of July 23, 1967, on the corner of 12th Street and Claremont. By day, the second floor of the building located at 9125 12th Street was, ironically, the office of the United Community League for Civic Action. But on the weekends, it operated as a blind pig, an illegal drinking club. Blind pigs started up during Prohibition, but the name stuck after alcohol went back to being legal and was then just applied to unlicensed, under-the-table operations. This particular blind pig was operated by a man named William Scott Jr. His son, William Scott III, was the doorman. On the night of July 22nd into the early morning of July 23rd, Scott's blind pig hosted a welcome home party for a couple of Army veterans recently returned from Vietnam. Because the Detroit Police Department apparently had nothing better to do with their time, they liked to raid the blind pigs in black neighborhoods for funsies. At 3.45 a.m. on July 23rd, they raided Scott's establishment on 12th Street. 
They expected to find just a handful of illegal partiers inside, but there were 82 people at this welcome home party, all of whom were black. Several of them were veterans, a few were even in uniform, but the police did not give a fuck. They arrested them all. They took everyone outside and lined them up against a wall. They hadn't planned to arrest nearly 100 people, so they hadn't brought nearly enough transport vehicles. It took about an hour for everyone to be loaded into paddy wagons and carted off to jail. By that time, nearly 200 onlookers had gathered on the opposite side of the street. As police cleared the scene, William Scott III, the doorman and son of the owner of the blind pig, threw a bottle at the small crowd of remaining officers. It smashed to the ground and broke. The officers ignored it. They might have been armed, but they were sorely outnumbered at this point. So they got back into their cars and drove off as more bottles were thrown by the crowd, including one through the window of a police cruiser. As a riot began to form, police fled the scene. Soon, there were thousands of looters and rioters in the streets, smashing store windows, setting fires to buildings. By mid-morning on the 23rd, every police officer and firefighter in the city of Detroit was called to the 12th Street riot to control the crowd, which the police were exactly who the mob was angry with, not just for the unnecessary raid on a welcome home party for a couple of veterans, but for years of violent overreach in their community. So the entire police force descending upon the scene did not improve the situation, shockingly. Detroit Mayor Jerome Kavanaugh called up Michigan Governor George Romney, father of Mitt Romney and namesake of the Romney Building in downtown Lansing, and they asked him to send state police in for backup. But 300 additional officers were nothing compared to the nearly 10,000 rioters and 100,000 onlookers that had gathered. By the time the National Guard arrived on the evening of the 23rd, less than 24 hours after the raid at the 12th Street Blind Pig, over a 1,000 people had already been arrested and five people had been killed. The first fatalities are believed to be those of 26-year-old Willie Hunter and 32-year-old Prince Williams, both black, whose charred bodies were found in the basement of Brown's Drugstore on 12th Street. According to Our Detroit, it was believed that they were looting the building when they were trapped in the basement by fire and died of asphyxiation. 68-year-old George Creeker, a white business owner, was beaten by a mob while defending his shoe repair shop at 7711 Linwood Street. He later died. 15-year-old Jason Jones, who was black, was sitting under a tree as a gang of young white men ran by exchanging gunfire with police. He was hit in the chest by a stray bullet and killed. 23-year-old mother Sharon George, who was white, was shot in the chest by an unknown rioter as her husband tried to drive past a mob on Woodward Avenue and Melbourne Street around 11.30 p.m. On Monday, July 24th, the rioting and looting spread throughout the city. 483 fires were reported. Emergency operators were fielding over 200 calls an hour. Another 1,800 arrests were made, and 17 more people were killed. 45-year-old Walter Granka, who was white, was shot by a shopkeeper shortly after midnight while looting 4th Street's Temple Market. 23-year-old Clifton Pryor, who was white, was shot and killed by National Guardsmen at 2.45 a.m. According to authorities, he was one of many rooftop snipers taking aim at authorities. According to witnesses, he was unarmed and was trying to protect his home from an encroaching fire when he was shot. 
24-year-old John Ashby, who was white, was a Detroit firefighter who was electrocuted at 3.30 a.m. when his helmet touched a high-voltage power line while he was fighting a fire at Canton and Lafayette Streets. 49-year-old Fred Williams, who was black, was electrocuted by a downed power line behind his burning home, located at 9541 Goodwin Street at about 8.20 in the morning. 30-year-old Herman Ector, who was black, was a standout athlete and his class president in high school who went on to be a paratrooper in the Army. On the morning of July 24th, he walked to his mother's house to check on her. On his way home at about 9.45 a.m., he passed Lindy's Supermarket on Joy Road, and he found Waverly Solomon, an unlicensed security guard who was also black and didn't even work for the supermarket— in a confrontation with several kids he accused of looting. According to witnesses, Herman Ector attempted to defuse the situation, but according to Waverly Salomon, Herman attempted to grab his gun, so he shot and killed him. 36-year-old Daniel Jennings, who was black, was shot and killed around noon by Stanley Mazensky when he attempted to break into the drugstore Stanley owned and operated at 6000 John R. Street. 49-year-old Robert Beale, who was black, was shot and killed by police at 1.25 p.m. while looting right-way auto parts at 9335 Oakland Avenue. 34-year-old Joseph Chandler, who was black, was shot in the back by Detroit police at 1.45 p.m. while fleeing Food Time Market on 2nd Avenue after taking part in looting the store. 46-year-old Herman Canty, who was black, was driving away from the Bilo supermarket on West Grand Boulevard with stolen goods in his van at about 2.45 p.m. when police shot him in the neck and killed him. 35-year-old Alfred Peachlam, who was black, was looting the A&P supermarket at 3430 Joy Road when he was shot and killed by police at about 4 p.m. 35-year-old Alfonso Smith, who was black, was shot and killed by police around 5 p.m. inside the Standard Food Market at 9750 Dexter. 35-year-old Charles Kemp, who was black, was shot in the back by police and National Guardsmen at 5.20 p.m. as he fled Borges Market on Mack Avenue. 23-year-old Nathaniel Edmonds, who was black, was shot and killed at 5.30 p.m. near the intersection of Baldwin Street and Harper Avenue by a white civilian who accused him of breaking into a nearby store. 35-year-old Richard Sims, who was black, was shot by police at 8.30 p.m. at his neighbor's back door after being spotted trying to break into a bar at Linwood and Buena Vista Streets. 19-year-old Frank Tanner was shot in the back by police as he was running away from a store on East Graham Boulevard and Helen Street. He collapsed at a nearby building, where he was not noticed by tenants until the following morning. 30-year-old firefighter Carl Smith, who was white, was shot in the head by an unidentified sniper around midnight near the corner of St. Jean Street and Mack Avenue during a period of heavy gunfire. 26-year-old Emmanuel Cosby, who was black, was shot and killed by police around midnight as he ran away from N&T Grocery, located at 4441 East Nevada Avenue. Nearly 2,500 rifles and a few dozen handguns were stolen from local stores during the looting, which black-owned businesses were not spared from. One of the first stores looted was Hardy's Drugstore, which was owned by a black family and often filled prescriptions on good faith and credit. One of Detroit's best-loved black restaurants and the leading black-owned women's clothing store were both torched by arsonists. 
Detroit firefighters had a hard time putting out the fires because they were under near-constant sniper fire. On Tuesday, July 25th, 2,000 Army paratroopers in tanks and armored carriers joined the National Guardsmen, State Police, County Sheriff's Department, and Detroit Police Department in trying to control the riots, but the violence only escalated. And that escalation was widely at the hands of law enforcement officials. As citizens continued to be arrested by the thousands, abuse and sexual assault ran rampant in the overcrowded jails, particularly at the Detroit Police Department's 10th Precinct. Mugshots of those arrested offered proof that inmates were badly beaten by officers after their arrests, so they looked fine in their mugshots, but all of a sudden they've got, you know, big black eyes and fat lips and things like that. Women were stripped and fondled by officers as other officers laughed and took pictures. Several more people were killed on July 25th, and two of the most shocking incidents to take place during the riot occurred. Killed on the 25th were 55-year-old security guard Julius Dorsey, who was black. Julius was simply doing his job defending the fruit market he worked for at 1000 Field Street when he was mistaken for a looter by a National Guardsman and was shot and killed. 27-year-old Henry Denson, who was black, was shot and killed by a guardsman around 2 a.m. after the car he was a passenger in ran a checkpoint on Mac near East Grand Boulevard. Authorities claimed the car was attempting to run down police and guardsmen at the checkpoint, but several witnesses disputed that claim. 27-year-old Jerome Olshove, who was white, was the only police officer killed in the riot. He was shot when another officer's gun discharged during a struggle with a looter outside the A&P store at 121 Holbrook Avenue. So the only police officer to die during the riot was killed by another police officer. And yet we've got how many black men being shot in the back, shot driving away, shot by accident, all by those who were brought into the situation to defuse it. But let's keep going. 46-year-old deaf-mute Roy Banks, who was black, was shot by a National Guardsman at 4.30 a.m. while he was walking to the bus stop to get to work. Authorities claimed they saw him looting a bar at Mac and Roan's, but that turned out not to be true. 24-year-old Ronald Evans and 32-year-old William Jones, both black and unarmed, were killed in a hail of gunfire by police and guardsmen after being caught stealing beer from Bob's Market at 4100 Pennsylvania Street. According to police, the men attempted to flee when approached, but witnesses said that was not true. What if it was true? They were running away from you with beer, so you killed them? I, I don't, I can't. 36-year-old Arthur Johnson and 36-year-old Perry Williams, both black, were shot and killed by police at 3.30 p.m. inside Sherman Loan Company, located at 1401 Holbrook Avenue. 38-year-old Jack Snyder, who was black, was the only known vigilante sniper to die during the riot. At 9.45 p.m., he drunkenly began firing his pistol out the window of his apartment on Hazelwood Street. He hit one officer before several officers hit him right back and killed him. 30-year-old John Leroy, who was black, was riding in a car with several other men just before midnight when National Guardsmen fired upon the vehicle, mortally wounding him. This one is 
it's all heartbreaking, honestly. So much unnecessary tragedy. But this one? Just before 1.30 a.m., 19-year-old Bill Hood stood in the window of his family's second-floor apartment near the intersection of 12th and Euclid, kind of ground zero for the riot. Sniper fire had been reported in the area, so armored tanks full of National Guardsmen were patrolling the neighborhood. As the teenager watched the procession from the safety of his apartment, he lit a cigarette. A guardsman mistook the flash from the match for gunfire and unleashed the fury of his tank's 50 caliber machine gun on the apartment, with a family inside it. 21-year-old Valerie Hood was shot, her arm nearly severed, and her four-year-old cousin, Tanya Blanding, who was huddled on the floor, was shot through the chest and killed instantly. Tanya and her family were black. 41-year-old Mortimer LeBlanc, a white sergeant, admitted to firing his tank's machine gun into the apartment's window. Sergeant LeBlanc, of course, was cleared of any wrongdoing. July 25th also marked the start of the Algiers Motel Massacre, which is the primary focus of the 2017 film Detroit, starring John Boyega, Anthony Mackie, Will Poulter, and John Krasinski. The movie premiered at Detroit's Fox Theater, right in the thick of riot territory, on July 26, 2017, on the 50th anniversary of the incident, and five years ago today. The Algiers Motel and Manor House was located at 8301 Woodward Avenue. It was one of three motels owned by Black entrepreneurs Sam Gant and McCurrent Pie. Prior to being purchased by the duo, the white owner of the hotel did not allow Black guests. The main hotel, the Algiers, was U-shaped, with the main office, pool, and cabana rooms to the left, and a two-story wing of guest rooms to the right. Behind the building was the three-story manor house, which could be rented out by the room or you could rent the whole manor house. The Algiers had a reputation as a hub of illegal activity. Drugs, prostitution, the Vice Squad raided the place on the regular. It was located right next to GM's headquarters, and uh, it said that those higher-ups at the company were frequent customers at the Algiers. But during the riot, it became a place of refuge for people who couldn't safely make it home and needed somewhere to wait it out. Among those were three members of the up-and-coming soul group, The Dramatics. The five Detroit-born young men who made up the band were backstage at the Fox Theater getting ready to perform to a packed house as part of the Motown Music Review when the show was canceled and the building was evacuated due to the ever-increasing danger and violence happening outside. Two of the band's members, 21-year-old Roderick Davis and 19-year-old Larry Reed, along with the band's valet, 18-year-old Fred Temple, sought refuge at the Algiers. They checked into the manor house where several other young black men were staying, along with two white teenage girls who had multiple prostitution charges on their police records. The guests at the manor house on July 25, 1967 were... 21-year-old Roderick Davis, 19-year-old Larry Reed, and 18-year-old Fred Temple of the Dramatics. 40-something-year-old Charles Moore, he was the only person staying there over the age of 20, mid-20s. 26-year-old Vietnam veteran Robert Lee Green, who's played by Anthony Mackie in the movie. 21-year-old Michael Clark, 20-year-old Lee Forsyth, and then 
everybody else was teenagers. Aubrey Pollard was 19. The two sex workers, Julianne Heisel and Karen Malloy, were 18. James Sorter was 18. And Carl Cooper, the first to die that night, was 17. As darkness fell over a burning city on July 25th, a team of Detroit police, Michigan State Troopers, and Michigan National Guardsmen were guarding the Great Lakes Mutual Insurance Building a block north of the motel when they reportedly heard gunfire just after midnight, so technically July 26th now, and descended upon the building. 25-year-old Melvin Dismukes, a black security guard who was guarding a store across the street from the motel, also heard the shots, and he headed over to investigate as well. In the movie, Dismukes is played by John Boyega, and his role is kind of he tried to keep the peace between these kids and these police officers very unsuccessfully, so he was a witness to a lot of what happened. According to witness testimony, three of the black youths, Carl Cooper, Michael Clark, and Lee Forsyth, were in a room on the third floor listening to music with the two girls when 17-year-old Carl pulled out a starter pistol and shot blanks into the air. In the movie, it depicts him as thinking that this is funny, like a way to freak out the law enforcement officials camped out below, but I'm not sure how accurate that is. Whatever his intention, the result was that the riot task force outside began to fire upon the manor house, shooting out the windows on all three floors. The occupants ducked, hid, and tried to flee as police entered the building. Carl Cooper, who had been on the third floor when the shooting began, was found on the first floor by police. According to them, he was already dead when they entered the house. But according to witness testimony, police shot and killed him immediately upon entering. His wounds were consistent with the buckshot wounds caused by the type of shotguns the Detroit Police Department used at the time. All four agencies on scene, the Detroit Police, the State Police, the County Sheriff's Department, and the National Guard, denied being the first to enter the building and said that Carl was already dead when they saw him. To this day, Carl's death has not been explained. The riot task force rounded up the guests of the manor house and lined them up face-first, single file, against a wall in the foyer. It goes without saying, but I will say it anyway— all of these agencies involved in the riot and this massacre, they were all predominantly white, something like over 90% white, and many of them were very outwardly racist. Every member of the riot task force that responded to the Algiers Motel that night was white, and they were none too happy to find a couple of pretty little white teenagers in a motel full of young black men. So the rage and physical violence were instant. The purpose of the task force's occupation of the manor house was to determine if there was a gun and if someone had been shooting at them. Is there, you know, a danger, a sniper here? And this part, even in the movie, is really weird and confusing. None of the articles that I've read since cleared this up for me at all. So they've got them all against the wall, five of the young men and the two girls, guns to their head, roughing them up, yelling, you know, where's the gun? Who's the shooter? Where's the sniper? And none of them will talk, even though Carl is lying dead on the floor. According to witnesses, Carl was the one that fired the blanks that were mistaken for sniper gunfire. So why not just say that? He was already dead. What else could they do to him? 
There were four other people in the room with Carl when the shooting started. So if he did fire a toy gun out the window as a joke, four people saw him do that. Just tell the police that, right? But they didn't. And to add to the confusion over what really started this whole thing, no gun, real or fake, was ever found at the scene at all. All seven of the manor house guests that the task force had kind of held captive in this foyer were brutalized. One teen was hit so hard with the barrel of a shotgun that it broke over his head. The girls were forcibly stripped, ogled, and threatened. A switchblade was tossed onto the floor, and each of the young men was ordered to pick it up so that the police could shoot them in self-defense, but none of the boys took the bait. They were threatened, beaten, and then one by one taken into rooms and interrogated in what was later called the death game. Once an officer was alone in a room with one of the boys, they would, you know, threaten to kill them if they didn't talk. You know, who was it? Who did it? Was it you? And once they got to the point where they were confident that their guy didn't know anything, they would fire around dangerously close to where he was laying on the ground, then tell him to lie still and stay silent or the next bullet would kill them. Then they would go back out in the hall where everybody else was and announce that they had just killed this person. And they would kind of taunt, you know, who's next? The ringleader of this terroristic investigation was 23-year-old Vice Patrolman David Senek, who's played by a chilling Will Poulter in the movie. Even though none of the officers' real names are used in the film, it's very easy to tell who's who. David Senek had already been involved in the killing of two civilians during the riot, two black civilians, but he was allowed to remain on duty while the department decided whether to file murder charges against him or not. Officer Senek's lackeys in the movie and in real life were officers Ronald August and Robert Pale. The three took turns playing the death game, but someone forgot to explain the rules to Officer August. So when it was his turn, he took 19-year-old Aubrey Pollard into room A3 and just shot him and killed him. He didn't know that he was just supposed to scare him and then shoot the ceiling or the floor. Of course, he later claimed self-defense, but multiple witnesses, including a National Guardsman who testified against him, heard, if not saw, what actually happened. Once Aubrey Pollard was dead, the National Guard and Michigan State Police dipped out real quick, leaving the sadistic Detroit police crew to clean up their own mess. One by one, they let their captives go after swearing them to secrecy through intimidation until only one was left, 18-year-old Fred Temple, the valet for the dramatics. His body was found in room A3 right near Aubrey Pollard's. Before the other hotel guests were allowed to leave, they were taken into room A3, they were shown Aubrey's body, and they were coerced to say, like, oh, I don't see anything, there's nothing here. Um, And then they were allowed to leave once they basically confirmed that they would never say anything. There's no way to know what really happened to Fred Temple once it was just him and the officers, because he didn't live to tell his story, and the police officers were fucking liars and murderers, but... It's assumed that maybe he refused to turn a blind eye to what happened at the Algiers. It was determined that Officer Pale killed Fred Temple. Um, He admitted that he shot him and killed him, but he also said that it was in self-defense. Three unarmed black teenagers, 17-year-old Carl Cooper, 
19-year-old Aubrey Pollard, and 18-year-old Fred Temple were murdered in cold blood by Detroit police officers in front of multiple witnesses, including other law enforcement agencies. And nobody reported these deaths to the Homicide Bureau, as was protocol. They just fucking left them there and vacated the premises. A security guard at the Algiers found the bodies the following morning. There was a cover-up attempt, of course, but there were simply too many witnesses to what had happened, and so arrests were made, starting with Melvin Dismukes, the security guard. These shitbag officers tried to blame all of that brutality on the black security guard who just happened to pop over to the motel to see what was going on and then attempted unsuccessfully to keep peace between the police and a room full of frightened teenagers. Dismukes was charged with felonious assault of two of the youths, but he was acquitted at trial. Officers Senek, Pale, and August were all charged with murder after Pale and August made confessions and incriminating statements against Officer Senek. But those confessions were ruled inadmissible at trial because some idiot forgot to read them their Miranda rights before questioning them. It should surprise you 0% that all three officers either had charges against them dismissed or were acquitted at trial. They all lost their jobs with the Detroit Police Department, though, and they all moved out of the city. Melvin Dismukes actually went on to become a security guard for the Detroit Pistons. The Algiers Motel was shut down for a time, then tried to make a go of it again and reopened as the Desert Inn, but could not escape its reputation as the site of a brutal massacre. So it closed again, and the hotel and manor were demolished in 1979. Today, it's just a grassy field. The families of the murdered teens filed wrongful death lawsuits against the city of Detroit, and the cases were settled for $62,500 each, the equivalent of $300,000 today. As much as I would like to stop talking about this horribly dark, depressing piece of Michigan history, the riot didn't end with the Algiers massacre. The three teens killed at the Algiers were not the only deaths on July 26th, unfortunately. 19-year-old William Dalton, who was black, was murdered by white police officers shortly after midnight. Multiple witnesses said officers took Dalton, who was suspected of arson, into an alley on Grand River Avenue and forced him to run, then shot him as he did. 51-year-old Connecticut businesswoman Helen Hall, who was white, was shot and killed in her room at the Harlan House Motel on John Lodge Freeway at about 1 a.m., by a National Guardsman who mistook her for a sniper when she opened the curtains of her fourth-floor hotel room. 26-year-old Larry Post, who was white, was the only National Guardsman to die in the riot. He was accidentally killed by fellow Guardsmen when they opened fire on a car full of young white men who allegedly ran a roadblock. Those three men, all in their early 20s, were arrested and they were taken to Detroit's 10th Precinct, where they were beaten inside a locked room so severely that one of them suffered a broken jaw. 23-year-old Willie McDaniels, who was black, was shot in the head by police at 2.30 p.m. as he attempted to flee from looting Domestic Outfitting, located at 6858 Gratia Avenue. 20-year-old George Talbert, who was black and unarmed, was shot at 5 p.m. by a National Guardsman as he walked south on LaSalle Garden South near 12th Street. He was reportedly shot for refusing to obey an order to halt. 
26-year-old Julius Lust, who was white, was killed by police at 10 p.m. while trying to steal auto parts from the G&W Auto Parts Junkyard, located at 17130 Joseph Campau Avenue. And 38-year-old Albert Robinson, who was black, was shot and bayoneted, bayoneted by National Guardsmen after they stormed an apartment building at Davidson and LaSalle Boulevard in search of snipers. By Thursday, July 27th, four days after the riot began, the storm began to calm. On Friday, July 28th, troop withdrawal began. But the riot task force had to take one last parting shot before they disbanded. On Saturday, July 29th, unarmed black teenager Ernest Roquemore was accidentally shot in the back just before 8 p.m. by a paratrooper who was allegedly aiming at another teenager, an armed suspect that was fleeing a building that had just been raided. Five days. 43 people dead, 33 of whom were black, 10 of whom were white. Only one police officer and one National Guardsman were among the deceased, and they were both killed by other officers. Most of those killed were young, unarmed black men. Many of them were shot in the backs as they fled from police. Nearly 2,000 people were injured, some of them seriously. We're talking lost limbs, paralyzations, broken bones, not just, you know, black eyes and fat lips. Over 7,000 people were arrested. Now, I'm just going to read this sentence to you because there is absolutely no other information included. It is a standalone sentence, and I was unable to find anything else on it. But it says, 7,231 people were arrested. 6,528 adults and 703 juveniles. The youngest was four and the oldest was 82. They arrested a fucking four-year-old? A four-year-old. Close to 2,000 businesses reported looting and or damage. Over 1,400 buildings burned and some 5,000 people were left homeless. Property damage was estimated at $45 million, which would be almost $400 million today. The Detroit riot of 1967 was the deadliest race riot of the long, hot summer and is still considered one of the worst riots in American history. And for what? Like, for what? Thank you for coming to my dead talk. A full list of resources for today's episode will be available on the SoDead website. There were so many so many resources for this one. But I do have to say the one that I referenced the most was the list of victims' names from an article by Our Detroit released just ahead of the 50th anniversary and the movie. And I I wouldn't consider the movie a research source, but if you haven't seen it, it is definitely worth watching. Now, I know for sure that I didn't get this all right, probably. You don't need to tell me. I always hesitate to take on such big, important historical events because I know that I'm going to get things wrong. Sometimes having too much available information actually makes it harder to research because it's all different. We're talking like history.com and Britannica.com have conflicting facts listed and numbers and figures uh, and, and who do you believe. So what I will tell you is that I did my absolute best. Uh, some of my figures might not be exactly right. I'm sure that I missed some pieces of this puzzle because there was a lot going on, but I did thorough, extensive research on this one, and I really did do my best to bring this story justice, which 
brings me to today's liquid cheese sorta. You may or may not have noticed the episode number for today's episode. This is episode 90. And while 100 is kind of like that benchmark, right, that big historic, wow, there's 100 episodes, 90 is really significant to me, and here's why. Because the first 45 episodes of So Dead were in season one. So Danny and I did 45 episodes together, and now I have done 45 episodes by myself. And it's wild to me. (laughs) It's just... It's wild to me that we pumped out that much content that quickly. It's taken me another two and a half years to do 45 episodes after we did 45 episodes in just one year. So, um, you know, I meet a lot of people at Dead Time Stories, and I very often have people, you know, tell me that they're excited to start a podcast. And I'm sure that my face is probably not as excited for them as they would like it to be. (laughs) It's not because uh, I think that, you know, you shouldn't start a podcast. If that's something that you feel like you want to try, try it. But just be aware that it is so much work. Burnout is very, very real. It happened to both Danny and I kind of towards the end of that first year there. And it's happened to me again several times since. Uh, especially when it's something like true crime or history where you're not just talking and having a conversation. You actually have to do the research and all of that prior to turning on your microphone and recording the episode. So I always tell people that a, a true crime podcast or a historical podcast done right takes a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I mean, my episodes are every other week now, and I still feel like all I do is work on the podcast. So just something to keep in mind for anyone considering starting a podcast. Um, My biggest suggestion would be to start small. Um, I wish that we had started out doing episodes every other week, and then if we were keeping up with that easily, we wouldn't have been. then go to weekly because it's hard to make the transition in the other direction. It's hard to take things away. It's hard to break off into seasons or take a couple of breaks a year where there are no new episodes for a month or so because people get used to hearing you, you know, every week and then you start taking some of that away and it's not always received well. So that biggest piece of advice for anybody that wants to start a podcast is start slow and build up to where you want to be if you can hang. Another big piece of advice, which (laughs) I hope that my editor hears this part, Susan, I'm so sorry, but a big part of advice is record your episodes way ahead of time. Like get several of them under your belt and ready to go so that you're not constantly playing catch up. I can't tell you how many times I am emailing her at like midnight on Monday before the episode is supposed to come out Tuesday telling her that it's ready to be, you know, edited and have her work her magic. And that's not that's not fair. That's not very cool of me. Um, but it's also I'm just drowning in work and I'm I'm doing my best here. So the the more ahead of yourself that you can get before you go live and start publishing your content, the better. Uh, I have learned a ton. And I don't know if you've noticed that the the tone of the podcast has has started to change a little bit. 
Because it's just a different dynamic when there's two of you versus when it's just one person telling a story. So I think that the nature of true crime podcasts in general is changing. And I'm not sure exactly what that means for the future. But I I personally am definitely more comfortable with the history stuff now and the really, really old stories. The more recent something is, the more uncomfortable it makes me to cover it. So uh, I, I don't know where things are headed, but we are 45 episodes down as a, a two-person podcast and now 45 episodes down as a one-person podcast. At some point this year, we should hit a really big milestone of a million downloads and then pretty early on in the fifth season, five seasons, um, we'll reach that 100th episode. But to me, 90 is pretty significant because it just kind of highlights how hard we hit it coming out of the gate and how wild that all was and how important it is to actually go a little slower and take your time where you can. On that note, this episode, episode 90, is the last before my quote-unquote summer break, which really just means no new episodes in August as I frantically prepare for a festival of oddities. My next podcast episode will be a live show at a Festival of Oddities on September 3rd at the Courthouse Square Museum in Charlotte. I am doing a crossover show with my good friend Nina Instead of Already Gone. Uh, We did it last year and it was really fun and I'm excited to do that again with her this year. So uh, there will be pre-sale tickets if you want to guarantee your space up in the presentation room. Just make sure you're following the Festival of Oddities Facebook page and or website for that information. I'll post it on the So Dead pages as well when it's time. But we'll do pre-sales so you can pay to guarantee yourself a ticket or just kind of day of. If there's available seating and you're inside the museum, which is going to be $5 admission for all of the things going on inside the museum, um, if you're in there, there's a show going on, there's available seating, you are welcome to sit in. But if you want to guarantee your place, you will definitely want to do the pre-sale tickets. I think that's it. Summer break. Festival of Oddities is coming up. Next new episode of So Dead that will be aired will be after the Festival of Oddities. And then we'll finish out season four of So Dead here in November, which is not that far away. So I will see you in like a month or so. Well, I won't see you. You'll hear me. You'll hear me in about a month or so. Um, Maybe I'll see you if you come to a Festival of Oddities. But until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.